Welcome to Take Care. This is the podcast that helps you understand the background and habits of change makers. Host Rish Sharma and his guests give you the wisdom to help you learn a little more and get a bit better every episode. Hey everyone, welcome to Take Care. Today's guest is on Forbes 30 Under 30 list, Nick Sharma, known as the DTC guy. He is the former head of DTC at VaynerMedia and currently the founder of Sharma Brands, an investment and consulting firm focused on finding the next wave of iconic brands such as Twice, Haas, Brightland, and many more. Welcome, Nick. We're excited to have you here. Thank you for having me on. It's excited to be here. Yeah, happy to make this happen. So I'd like to start the conversation to give the audience a little bit more about your background. So if you can go in a little bit about your backstory, kind of where your journey began, how you started this entrepreneurial and brand journey of yourself. Yeah, I mean, it started pretty non-traditionally. I was in high school and realized that my strong suit was not necessarily taking tests. And so kind of as a way out, I figured, well, if I can make money doing something, I should be good. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I got interested in social media marketing. And, you know, initially it started by working with, you know, local businesses and then just cold emailing like crazy. I ended up being able to work with Pitbull, Priyanka Chopra, Magic, just a bunch of cool celebrity mm-hmm. type of profiles. And then from there, you know, I just always have been the curious type. And so I kept pursuing that curiosity behind marketing, which led me to San Francisco, where I learned you know, all around ad tech and data, programmatic, more sophisticated type of marketing. And then after that, you know, I kind of had a good understanding around paid marketing as well as organic marketing. And then I joined a company called Hintwater. Yep. And my goal there was to basically scale the direct consumer business there. Mm-hmm. And then once I got to Hint, I really realized the fun side that comes with working on the brand side. Mm-hmm. And so since then, I've just been really interested in going deeper and deeper with brands. And, you know, then VaynerMedia moved me out to New York last year. And since then, it's, I mean, New York is like a playground for brands. And yep. so it's just, you know, it's for me, it's been a lot of fun just getting to know or getting to make a lot of friends who are founders out here mm-hmm. and just going deeper on it. And then, you know, as a byproduct of working with brands, whether they are, not early stage or they are very early stage and also just having a lot of friends who are founders the investment and advising side of Sharma Brands was born like pretty organically it was never an intention and basically I would say curiosity has just led me down this funny path over the last few years yeah I mean curiosity and I think that constant learners what we find in a lot of the interviews that we've had of you know great founders like yourself that are trying to make change in the world. But I'd like to kind of go back to when you discovered that fun side of branding and now, you know, involved with many brands. What is it about branding per se that drew your interest that kind of got you excited? Well, it really, for me, it started at Hint because, you know, Hint was, it's a very functional product. Their flagship product is their water. Mm-hmm. And it's very functional in the sense that it helps a lot of people get off of soda or juices or vitamin water, Gatorade, and really just drinking more water. Mm-hmm. And to me, the coolest part about what I was doing over there was that I was able to help people get off of 
you know, these bad habits and onto drinking water and become healthier. But then we were able to see the impact of it so quickly, whether it was through comments or customer service emails. And then to me, the coolest part is the fact that we could do this at scale, you know, mm -hmm. behind a computer yep. and help, like we could help thousands of people a day, you know, mm -hmm. make the switch from soda to water, which was awesome. And so that's where I really got obsessed with it was really being able to help people at scale. And then, you know, even all the brands that I've worked with since I worked at Hint, most of them are very functional. I don't mm -hmm. necessarily like to work on brands that don't have a functional purpose. A, because they're, they're usually just commodities, which aren't as fun. Mm -hmm. But B, I think it just goes back to being able to help people at scale, which I think is fascinating. And then the branding side of things is fun to me because that's where, you know, you take something that, like, for example, your mom has always probably told you not to drink soda and to drink water. Mm -hmm. But then you infuse branding and you make it relevant to so many different people who have different mindset and psychographic backgrounds and all that stuff and it makes it really fun because you kind of get the sandbox to play in to almost treat each customer differently but somewhat in the same way yep and that's that's really why i find branding to be a lot of fun thank you for going into that so i think a lot of what you said is kind of also what gary also talks about gary v who you worked for at vayner media mm -hmm. so you know he's become a big star in regards to social media mindset so what did you learn from that experience of working there for, I think you said about a year now, so until you left recently? I think the most interesting thing about Gary is, and I guess it's hard to see this through the videos and the content, but Gary's really built this machine called VaynerX, which is the holding company of all his other companies. He's built this machine to work almost around him. And in almost all the businesses, he's kind of the brains behind it or the, you know, the strategist behind whether it's like VaynerMedia, Vayner Sports, Vayner Productions, the Gallery Media Group. There's so many companies within mm -hmm. VaynerX, but he's really built an organization or I, I should say built an infrastructure and a system that works really well around him and really efficiently around him mm -hmm. to where, I mean, it's pretty insane, like the amount of things he touches in a single day. And to me, the most fascinating part was just how he built the system to work for him around the entire, like the entire ecosystem of VaynerX revolves around Gary. Not to say that they don't have their own leaders, but like with every client that we touched, Gary was very much involved. He goes really deep, which you don't necessarily see through the content because a lot of the content doesn't get filmed when it's with client work, but he really does go deep. And, you know, that was something that really fascinated me about working at Boehner. Thank you for going into that. I think people will be interested to hear that for sure. But one of the most impressive things from your young age to where you are today is how you built your career. So I'd love to kind of go into and say, you know, what were the keys that you did, just your curiosity that you would say, help you build that career? I think the first thing was that I just really never gave a shit about being vulnerable. <laughs> like I had no shame in anything from cold emailing to, you know, if I saw somebody that I wanted to talk to, I would just run up to them and talk to them. And like that honestly gave me a ton. And then I was always very focused around, you know, having strong relationships with people. So whether it was like, I mean, when I was younger, it would be like artist managers, for example, where I would just try and become absolute homies with these people. 
to today where it's like their brand founders or their investors or private equity firms. I've just always valued relationships a ton. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing was just putting out content on the internet. I didn't realize how, like A, how easy it is, but B, the kind of return or impact it has on my own career. I mean, even today, like a lot of the companies that I'll invest in will come my way because of something they've read of mine on the internet or like there was a company where I was in San Francisco and I have a public texting number and I blasted out to the San Francisco area that, hey, I'm out here in San Francisco. If anybody wants to come grab a drink with me, I'll be here at this time. And there was one guy that showed up named Kevin. I met him that night and the next day I decided to send him money to invest in his company. So there's just all these opportunities that come because of being connected on the internet, which I think is just, it's like, it's all free. There's no cost to being on the internet and putting out things on the internet. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a very valuable, valuable tip to put yourself out there to make sure that you're connecting with people and then serendipity happens. So I think that's 100% great values right there. But was there any resources or anything else beyond, you know, putting content out there that helped you understand things or anything else? Yeah, I would say there wasn't necessarily like books or blog posts or anything that I would yeah. read. In fact, I probably maybe one of the most like unread people out there. I have always had this thought that like, I would rather go to the source. Yep. And so a lot of times if I, you know, if I wanted to learn about how influencers are doing X, Y, or Z, I would just go to them. Or if I wanted to learn from some, like whatever I wanted to learn, I would just try and find a source or somebody who's actually doing that Mm -hmm. and just go ask them questions directly rather than reading something that was filtered through somebody else's words. Yeah, go to the source of the well of knowledge and get it from them. That makes perfect sense. Exactly. And even then, like there was almost like there really was no issue at all getting in touch with any of these people because like no one asked them anyways. <laughs> yeah. So I was just like, okay, I can just ask these people any kind of questions and yeah. they'll all respond. And the internet totally empowers that, especially with like Twitter where you have like direct 100%. access. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. And the books that I've read that I've gotten the most value are actually the ones from the founders themselves. People that are actually yeah. doing the work. So definitely agree with that for sure. So I'd like to take it to Sharma Brands now. What is it and what are you trying to achieve with this new venture? So Sharma Brands was this idea of, you know, last year I did a lot of work with brands, basically anything from scaling their growth to helping brands launch. You know, with Sharma Brands, it's basically the operating, but it's also adding the component of investing and advising. It's essentially what I was doing kind of on my own, but now under a real name, you know, with the hope that in the future, we actually develop brands of our own and leverage the team that we have to build them, you know, after both learning how to do it with other brands and also leveraging the resources and capabilities that we have internally. Thank you. Thank you for going into that. So DTC has been in the news a lot recently with the IPO of Casper that just happened this last week. I'd like to just kind of understand what is a DTC brand today in 2020? And you know, what does it mean? Well, at its fundamental, it really just means you deliver an experience to the customer directly. Like if you think about before the Costco's and the Walmarts of the world, almost everything was <laughs> was DTC, mm-hmm. just without a Shopify presence. Yep. And I think in 2020, 
I mean, fundamentally, it means the same thing. I think your question is more so like, how do you win in 2020? And I think the answer to that would be, I think the early wave of direct-to-consumer brands was all about being tactical with media and understanding how to buy media. The second wave was all around like selling commoditized products with the emphasis of branding and aesthetic and community and events. And this new wave, I think, that will really shape 2020 is around products that are actually not only like required or desired, but products that are moats within their product, not necessarily like one of the four cookware brands or one of the five leggings brands. These would be products that have a specific reason to exist and a specific value prop as to why people would buy it in the first place. Thank you for going into it. I'd like to just go a little bit more specific. Is there like a particular brand that you would show as an example to what you just said? Yeah. I mean, Judy is probably the most relevant example. You know, Judy's biggest competitors today are the Red Cross and AAA's first aid, <laughs> which don't necessarily include anything for really emergencies other than if you fall and cut yourself. Yep. And so the Judy product in itself it doesn't require, like you don't need community and content and Instagram following to be able to sell the product because the product itself is so good. Like, and it's just something that people see and they realize they would need. Whereas, you know, if you're competing in the commoditized market, whether it's leggings or cookware or any of these other direct consumer brands, you're really just competing against multiple others and your most per se are they might have moats in supply chain, but a lot of times they just don't have moat at all. That's exactly what happened in the mattress category. That's what happened in the meal kit category. Um, you just have all these brands that don't necessarily have a reason to stand out or stick out. And they just end up becoming these like stale brands where they're just competing with each other. And eventually what happens is all they do is just drive down their own cost of margin because they have to drive up the spend in marketing and you know that inverse relationship not only hurts the singular companies in there but the entire category as a whole it becomes a race to the bottom yeah exactly and you know you can kind of see it coming with the pet food space which is a little scary but you know we saw it happen with the blue aprons of the world and then of course casper we just saw and yeah there's just i mean even these mattresses like there's probably five factories in total Mm -hmm. that make all 180, you know, brands of mattresses. Yeah. And there's just like nothing unique about them except for the branding and the content or the pop-ups, et cetera. Capital raised essentially also. So yeah. Thank you for breaking that down, providing that example. So if you are looking for an investment, you know, a lot of these have, like you said, came from serendipity, but are there particular criteria beyond just it being a functional product that you're looking for in a potential investment? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So I think a lot of investors rely on their own, you know, backgrounds or histories to give them pattern recognition. <laughs> and my pattern recognition comes from distribution or marketing. And so when I think of brands uh, that I want to invest in, my first thought is, okay, if all else were to fail, is this a company that A, I could jump in and potentially save from a marketing perspective? Or B, even before that, what is this brand doing that's so unique that they almost have a moat within distribution? And so my favorite example of that 
is this company called Brightland, which is a olive oil company. And, you know, when I met with their founder, she told me that they're a direct-to-consumer brand, but they're not afraid of retail. And in fact, with retail, they're actually planning to start with, you know, the most elite retail companies like the Nordstrom's of the world. Yeah. And eventually they're going to work their way down to the target. And when I heard that, I was just like, okay, well, she gets it, you know, both from a retail, from a food service and from a direct to consumer standpoint, like e-commerce, she's absolutely killed it. But a lot of the times when I look at investments, I basically filter it down to a, does it have value props that make it attractive? B, what's the competitive landscape? And C, is there a moat within distribution or the product itself that can't be, you know, necessarily disrupted by a competitor? Yeah, it's almost like that she took that Tesla approach, right? Where you sell exactly. the high end car and then you over time you get it down to the average end consumer. So yeah. thank you for breaking that down. So taking that to the next step, where do you see the categories of brands that in the next 10 years, like where do you think commerce and branding goes from this point? I think it actually, it's going to be this nice fusion of online and offline. We're already kind of seeing experiential makes a huge difference. I mean, you know, there's a brand that I invested in where they can sample product and make the same amount of money in a day sampling product and selling bottles as they do online. So online and offline fusion really excites me. I also think we're just going to see this awesome genesis of branded content where we're going to start to get a lot of our whether it's like informational content or just even like what Dirty Lemon is doing with creating shows, you know, we're just going to start to see a lot of cooler branded content come to life. And I'd say those two are the main two that I'm excited for. I also just think, you know, because so many things have been tried and or done, I think it's going to be really interesting to see the new type of brands that come out, you know, brands like, like Hilma that just launched recently and really see what they're trying to tackle and how they tackle it too. And then from a advertising perspective, I'm very excited to see, you know, what happens to right now. It's the standard is Facebook ads and Instagram ads. So I'm excited to see where that evolves, you know, whether it's to other platforms, whether it's to completely other, you know, mediums, what like going offline and just kind of how these dollars start to play out over the next three to five years. Yeah, definitely a lot of mediums, podcasting. I know Spotify is making a lot of investments into that category to try to make yeah. that a little bit more programmatic and all these streaming services, you know, that's coming down the line as well. So definitely some exciting trends to come about. So I'd just like to get into some of the final questions. So this podcast, we like to also break down the routines, habits, rituals. So is there, do you have a morning routine? Is there any particular rituals that you take into the work you do? If you could just expand on to that. Let's see. Routine-wise, I would say there's not a ton. It really depends on a day-to-day basis. Usually, I'll get up around 6 or 6.30 in the morning. I try and hit a 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock workout class mm-hmm. because I find that working out in the morning is like, that feels like the hardest thing in the day and everything else that day is easier than what I've already done. Mm-hmm. So I love doing that. And then usually I'll also make those workout classes like a meeting or something of that sort. It's like for today, for example, I'm going to go rumble, which is a boxing class with Austin Reef, who's the founder of Morning Brew. <laughs> and for me, that's super convenient because I don't have to commute anywhere else to go meet Austin. Mm-hmm. And we get to have a good time together. 
Yeah. So I usually work out and then it's day to day. It's very different. You know, Mondays and Thursdays are days that I'm usually out and about meeting with clients and usually in brand offices. Mm-hmm. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm usually at home just cranking away. Mm-hmm. And then Friday is usually up in the air. But I would say Friday, I try and spend a good amount of hours just, you know, whether it's meeting with people who are just seeking advice or they, you know, like I'll go meet with brands if, you know, they just want to chat about growth and shoot the shit. But Fridays are usually my days for that. And then, you know, the weekend is, it all depends. Today, I'm working out and then meeting with Austin and then probably just hanging out. And then tomorrow I'm speaking at a brunch work event and then probably just going to prepare for the week. Thanks for breaking down your week and kind of how, how you go about your routines. Final couple questions. What does personal care mean to you? Personal care. It's an interesting question because I started to take it a lot more seriously this year. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a few things. It's making sure I'm sweating every day, mm-hmm. whether that's by not Ubering and walking everywhere in New York, or that's getting an actual workout in where I'm just very focused for you know 45 minutes to an hour of just working as hard as I possibly can physically. And then the other main thing for me is sleep. So a lot of people don't necessarily put enough hours into sleep. So I actually, I got an eight sleep bed thanks to eight sleep. And I've been really tracking my sleep a lot more closely this year. And then I would say the last piece of it is just being really conscious of what I'm putting on my body and in my body. So whether Mm -hmm. it's the skincare brands that I'm using on my skin or whether it's the foods and the beverages that I'm consuming, Mm -hmm. just being hyper-conscious of what's going in and what the function of each one is and making sure that it's achieving that function. That's great. So have you noticed a difference since you started making this change in your life? Huge difference. I mean, just from sleep alone, I've noticed that my stress levels are down. My mood is in, you know, it's much better. I feel like I can take on a lot more during the day when I have more sleep with exercising on a daily basis. It just gets my brain pumping in a way that, you know, I'll come up with new ideas or whatever. Like my brain just works better when I exercise. And then, you know, the third one has been great too. My skin is clearer. Mm-hmm. and, you know, just like <laughs> my physical says it's working. <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Is there any common myth or some fact that, you know, become culture that you like to debunk that just bothers you? Probably the most obvious one for me is that, you know, you have to go to school to make anything of yourself, which I don't necessarily think is true. Although I don't advise people not to go to school either. I think it's a decision that everybody has to make on their own. But I think that's one big one. The other big one would be that you don't need eight hours of sleep a night. Mm-hmm. You definitely need eight hours of sleep a night. <laughs> yeah, agreed, agreed. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. If anybody wanted to connect with you, uh, how can they connect with you online? Two places are usually the easiest. One is Twitter, where I'm at Mr. Sharma. And then the second one is you can just text me. My phone number is 917-905-2340. And I try to respond to everybody that I can. Sometimes it can be a couple of days late, but I do my best to get back to everybody. All right. Thank you so much, Nick, for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. 